Thank you for joining the Capital Church Podcast. We believe that Jesus is for you and that through these expressions of our community, you will find hope, healing, and belonging. To learn more, join us live every week online and visit our website at capitalchurch.co or send us an email at info at capitalchurch.co. Turn your neighbor and say, go BSU. Let's go. If you are a Fresno State fan, we love you. And we're so sorry about last night, but not sorry. Um, But today I'd like to uh, talk to you. I'm actually going to take this passage of scripture and uh, I'm going to sketch it out line by line or verse by by verse, if that's okay with you. So it's kind of a mini, mini expository message. Uh, we'll be quick. You can go to barbecue afterwards. We're going to have a great time. Are you guys excited? If you like titles, that's what you don't have to be excited. I'm a big boy here. Um, if you like titles, it's, uh, we can title it prayer and spiritual warfare, or you can call it uh, truth and intercession and the cosmocrats, or you could call it, oh my gosh, I brought my friend for the very first time and I'm really embarrassed right now message. So you can call it whatever it is, but today this text clearly, as we read it, is all about warfare. So I'm going to do my best to walk us through what that means. So Paul begins, are you guys ready? Paul begins in verse 10. He says to be strengthened by God's strength, to be strengthened by God's might. The little literal translation I like a little bit better means to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. As one scholar says, the Holy Spirit is God's empowering presence. So there is a high expectation for the very beginning before we sketch out uh, this cosmic struggle that every follower of Jesus is entangled in. There's a high expectation that God does indeed strengthen us in our weakness. In other words, we should be surprised if God did not give us strength when we were weak. Why? Because God is the God who built out the architect of space and time and matter, but he's the one who specializes in giving strength to those who are weak. His grace is sufficient for us. His strength is made perfect in our weakness. And I think this is especially germane because we live in an age where one scholar calls it the exhausted majority. Everywhere, everyone is exhausted. I've read too many articles where normal, healthy people are suffering from cognitive decline because of social isolation, because of the uncertainty of the pandemic and all the different stuff that's happening in the world of politics. Many people are suffering cognitive decline. Hopefully that comes back. Can I get any man to that? The whole world is convulsing under the weight of chronic depression. Some of you don't even know, but you are depressed. Not clinically depressed, but chronically depressed. You, you can't put a voice to it. You can't put a name to it. The good news is today, God can give you strength. So I just want to say this to you. There is strength for those who are battling an unrelenting chronic illness in your body. As you're fighting the good fight of faith and believing God for his healing, we believe Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and he can heal you. But in the midst of maybe the 
the, the non-answer, God always answers, but in the season of waiting for healing and as you're battling an unrelenting chronic illness in your body, God can give you strength. There is strength for those who are facing an impossible situation today, which in effect has kept you up night after night after night and you do not know what to do and you are wasted. There is strength. God can empower you, as, as Garrison mentioned before, God can give you strength. He can carry you in your weakness. There is strength for those who are deep in the throes of paralyzing fear. So we live in the age of anxiety and we have catastrophe on our phones. How many of you think we should turn our phones off a little bit more? God can give you strength because he specializes in it. So then we transition to verse 11 And Paul gives us an imperative and he says this, put on the armor of God, put it on. God's not going to do it for you. This is a command, right? So there's a sense, it's funny in our culture, all we do is talk about rights and we need to talk about rights, but there's not a lot of discourse about responsibility, and let's, let's forget about culture writ large. Let's talk about the culture of the church. We need to talk about our responsibility of putting on Christ or putting on the armor of God. It's not optional as we follow Jesus in this cosmic struggle, which again, I'll uh, sketch out. This putting on the armor of God is absolutely formative or we'll say essential for God's empowerment in our life. The question is, Why? Well, verse 11 tells us, so that you may be able to stand. Everyone say stand. Come on, somebody. Everybody say stand. That you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So this is where we're going to, like some of you are like, oh my God, the, the pastor here, this is my first time or maybe second time. And I'm trying to figure out this whole Christian thing. And the pastor probably woke up in an alien beam, some weird stuff into his brain this morning. No, this is this is, I'm trying to teach you guys how to think Christianly. So Paul right here shatters our Western cosmology. Cosmology is simply the way we see the world. He not only shatters our cosmological take in the Western world, he shatters or tears apart our Western metaphysics. Many of us believe there's only one dimension. There's not all these different dimensions. There's only one dimension. It's a closed system that we live in. It's our dimension. There's no God. There's no angels. There's no spiritual powers. Paul puts that to the lie. He says there are schemes that come from the devil. What are those schemes? Well, quickly, those schemes are strategies of deception. Schemes are... Uh, the way in which the devil propagandize us into lies. Schemes are, uh, we'll say it this way, the devil is an artist when it comes to misinformation. He loves to misinform people. In fact, Jesus tells us in John chapter 8 that the devil is a murderer from the beginning, so he's a psychopath. And then he says he is the father of lies. In other words, the devil is a pathological liar. So, he has no truth in him. So Jesus, how many believe Jesus knows what he's talking about? Jesus acknowledges this supra personality who is anti-life, anti-God, anti-goodness, anti-beauty, anti-love. He wants, to, he wants to disfigure and deface all of creation. Every human image bearer he intends to destroy 
That's what he does. And he does this primarily through our thoughts. In fact, the devil, and I'm, I'm going to get into this here pretty quick, traffics in unreality. He is a pathological liar, so he traffics in unreality. He does not, and this is Jesus' words, he does not accept reality as it is. He only twists it and distorts it. And his primary medium of deception and lying is in the world of our thoughts. What I find interesting is the devil is a title. It's not a proper name. This is, this is Bible trash talk. God doesn't even give the devil a personal name because he's, he's not worth it. So the devil is an insult. Why is the devil insulted? Because he lies about your future. He lies about uh, if you're going to make it. He lies about uh, your bodies. He lies about your children. He lies, 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 he lies. He's a virtuoso in misinformation. Are you hearing me this morning? John Mark Comer wrote this, I think, Live No Lies or something like that. He talks about a lie, a very particular lie that I've come across over the last 22 years just being in ministry with a lot of married couples. And here's one profound lie, common lie, ubiquitous lie. It goes like this. Hey, you deserve to be happy. And let's face it, you haven't been happy in your marriage in years. Your wife or your husband just isn't right for you. It happens. You married way too young before you were self-aware and this marriage just isn't what you hoped it would be. But if, you were to, but if you were to divorce her or him, I'm sure there's someone else who would be better fit, fitted for you and would make you absolutely happy. It's a lie. Okay, okay, quickly. When it comes to lies, lies are deceptive. They're not flagrant. Are you hearing me? The devil's not gonna come to you today and whisper in your ear, hey, I just want to let you know that um, Elvis uh, and an alien got married, they had a baby, and his name is Bill Gates. <laughs> Believe me. Many of us wouldn't, I, I mean, it's just weird how we think about lies. I mean, the devil is, if you took the, I, I think we're, we're the smartest church in the world. I think we got some pretty smart people here, right? But if you, were, if you were to take the sum total of our IQ, collective sum total of our IQ, uh, we, we don't stand a chance against how crafty uh, this Hasatan in the Hebrew, this Hasatan figure is. He lies to you in disinformation or through misinformation. The, see, there's truth in what I just read about this whole lie about being married. Here's the thing about marriage couples. Even if you marry the right person, that person is absolutely still wrong for you. These guys didn't believe me, so I'm going to come over here. I'm going to say it again. There is truth. There's like, not, there's like 95% of this is true. The truth is, is that when you marry someone, they're just profoundly incompatible and God designed it that way. Why does God take a man and a woman and bring them together? Because they just, they will never figure each other out. I've tried to figure my wife out over the last 15 years, and I've come to one irrefutable conclusion. She is a vast mystery that makes no sense to me at all. Half of the day. 
And likewise, she has told me many times, she just, she just said amen to this, that she thinks I am the strangest man on the planet. No, like we are, we are, we are, male, female are radically incompatible. The reason why God brings us together and the reason why we are absolutely, even though we're right for each other, we're absolutely wrong for each other is because God wants to teach us about love. Loving someone you don't understand. So there's truth in there. The lie is, is there's happiness somewhere else. Someone needs to hear this today in your marriage. There's no happiness outside your marriage. Come on. Grass is not greener. It's not. And I'm going to get really cliche here. The gra- and I never meant to say this, but I think some people need to hear this. The grass is always greener where you water it. Where you focus. Come on, somebody. <laughs> Plus, no, I'm not even going to say that. I was going to insult everybody. All right. So the devil's a supra personality. Jesus acknowledges his existence. He's an intelligent figure that wants to deface uh, image-bearing creatures. We then come to verse 12. Are you guys still with me? Are you freaked out at all? Okay. Paul then says our struggle, everyone say our struggle. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but, it, but it's against this hierarchy of cosmocrats, against its principalities and powers. Let me just say this really quick. First, Paul describes the Christian life as a struggle, not a picnic, not Olaf's summer dream. And here, let me, let, me, let me just qualify by saying, yes, thank God we can go on vacation. And thank God, God can give us rest. And he gives us peace in the midst of any circumstance. You can have peace that's transcendent no matter what you're going through. Do you believe that today? So I'm not saying that we can't experience seasons of rest. But Paul primarily describes the Christian life as a struggle. So if you're struggling here today, here's the good news. We all are struggling here today. Don't pathologize it. Normalize it. Some of you are like, why is it so hard to read my Bible? Hey, here's the thing. When you go up against the grain of the universe, you're going to get splinters. Or in other words, when you go up against the way the world is, which is under the weight of these cosmocrats and their influence, you will experience resistance. Why, for some of you are like, why is it so hard for me to pray? My mind gets so distracted. Well, because you're going against the way the world is. And there's nothing wrong with the struggle, right? Now you can get through the struggle and there's empowerment to overcome the struggle. But yes, Paul describes the Christian life as a struggle. The good news is Jesus gives us rest. He gives us peace. He gives us righteousness. He gives us life in the midst of this wrestling against these hierarchy or this hierarchy of powers. But here's the second thing that I want to note about verse 12. (laughs) All of you are going to be offended, okay? Which I totally, I'm so excited to see your faces. Because I'm at the point, I'm 45, I just don't care what you think anymore. (laughs) He says, we don't wrestle, please hear me, against flesh and blood. What is that? Humans, 
people. We wrestle against the powers. So what Paul, in effect, is saying, the cosmic struggle is not against Trumpism or Nancy Pelosiism. It's not against Bible-believing gun owners. It's not against George Soros or Bill Gates. It's not against moms who are apparently political terrorists. It's not against school boards that are tyrannical. It's not against the vaccinated or the unvaccinated. I am so sick of the divisive narratives. If you don't think these divisive narratives are demonic, then you need to get your head out of the sand. I say that in love. You need to start reading your Bible, get immersing yourself in truth. And I'll talk more about that. But we're not locked up in some existential battle with proponents of critical race theory or illiberalism or white evangelicalism modeled after John Wayne. It's a book that came out, and it actually has a picture of me in that book. I can't even believe it. Anyways, that's just, it's a, don't read that book. We're not in this, this struggle against this technocratic fascist state right? Or or proponents of that. We are up against a hierarchy of powers that are in rebellion against God. First and foremost. So Chris, are you saying we can't have political beliefs? No, not at all. I have very strong political beliefs. And I believe as the church over the next decade, we're going to see the church rise up and speak the truth to the powers in love. In love. Because right now, most Christians that I see, unfortunately, are speaking the truth in malice and contempt. And homie, don't play that. And if homie don't play that, Jesus don't play that. One scholar writes, and some of you are going to totally misinterpret him, but I don't care. Okay, We're not simply, he says, up against our personal faults and foibles our petty temptations, our slight offenses. You and I are up against what we call the principalities and powers. Evil is large, cosmic, organized, subtle, pervasive, and real. Your struggle ultimately is against the powers who influence this world. Now here's the thing. Let me qualify. What this scholar is not saying is that we don't take responsibility for us. If you and your spouse get into a fight, which won't ha- doesn't happen here at this church. It just happens at other churches. <laughs> and you're on your way to barbecue and one of you disagree and you start fighting about, isn't it funny, let me just say this as, a, as an aside, isn't it funny as married couples, you fight about something and five hours later, you're like, you ask each other, what were we fighting about? Has that ever happened to you? About four of you? Okay, my wife and I need more counseling or something. Um, you need to take responsibility for that. That's not the devil making you do that, okay? So no matter what, we take responsibility for our failures, our petty temptations, our sin. But here's the thing. We also understand that we are ultimately up against this large, cosmic, organized, subtle, pervasive, and real presence in our world. We're not obsessed over it. Can I get an amen? Nor are we impressed with it. We are not obsessed over demonic powers, nor are we impressed with demonic powers. 
we just recognize the reality of their presence. My professor, he says this often, Adam and Eve at the very beginning in Genesis chapter one are blessable image bearing creatures who were placed in the middle of a war zone in order to bring God's rule and wisdom to bear over creation. In fact, he quotes John chapter eight. It says that the devil is a murderer from the what? The beginning. And I think his theory is right. Gary Brashears, don't blame me. If you have a problem, write Gary Brashears, okay? But his theory is that from the very beginning, there's this, all of creation is engulfed in this cosmic struggle against God. You have these powers that have rebelled against him. They're disfiguring creation. God in Genesis chapter one builds out the promised land, places blessable image creatures called Adam and Eve. And he wants to work with them as kings and priests, as vice regents to bring about his wisdom, his rule, his love, his grace, so he can bring creation into flourishing. But he does it right in the middle of a war-torn universe. In other words, we were created to bring about God's rule over these cosmocrats who want to destroy everything. Some of you don't believe me. Genesis chapter one says God blesses Adam and Eve and then what does he say? Go and subdue. That word subdue in the Hebrew mostly refers to something very, very forceful, very Violent. God wants us in love to bring about his wisdom into this world. C.S. Lewis said this 70 years after uh, uh, World War, or excuse me, 70 years um, ago following World War II, and he said this, enemy-occupied territory, that is what this world is. Christianity is the story of how we right, the rightful king has landed, you might say, landed in disguise and is calling us all to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. Christian orthodoxy, he's insisting, Christian teaching for 2,000 years and living is all about partaking in this global campaign of sabotage against these powers. So let me just say this really quick. Spiritual warfare makes us feel uneasy because either one, we don't believe in it and we've ruled it out a priori like, like our, most of our post-enlightenment age has done for over 200 years, or two, we get spooked about the possibility of invisible beings which have extension, agency, substance, or intelligence somewhere living out there in the world. A lot of this is because our culture has either catechized us into a belief that evil either does not exist or that evil is an unstoppable force. Many of us, we imagine exorcism when we think of spiritual warfare, or the hills have eyes, or Stephen King, or something like that, and it's absolutely terrifying, right? Uh, one of the, it's, it's, it's funny, I don't watch horror movies, um, but one of the common tropes of horror movies is how the religious community is absolutely and wholly inadequate in defeating evil. So some of you are either on the side of, I just don't think spiritual warfare is a thing today. Others of you are I'm like, I do not want to think about it because evil is, because again, we've been catechized by our culture. We've been taught to believe that evil is an unstoppable force. Paul in Ephesians 6 says, neither of those positions are true. Evil does exist, but Jesus won the victory over evil. 
So whatever verse we're in, verse 13, verse 14, can we put that out for me, guys? You guys are amazing. It's verse 13. It says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. So what do we do as we're locked up in this cosmic struggle? We simply stand. I'll, I'll even say this. I'll probably say this again here soon, but we don't even obsess over these powers. You don't need to go to CUNA and bind every principality and power over CUNA because you had a bad debt. Right? No, we stand because Jesus has won the victory over the cosmocrats through his death, through his resurrection. He ascended into heaven. He rules now over all of creation. And there will be one day as he's poured out his spirit and he's formed a community. I love our community because we're transnational. We're translocal. We're multi-ethnic. We have a beautiful community of so many different people. And it's, it's, it's a great and wonderful thing to see. It is because of the spirit. We are formed around King Jesus. But it's because of the achievements of King Jesus that we have the victory over the cosmocrats. I want you to think of World War II. World War II, you had D-Day. In D-Day, you had the Allied forces uh, consisting of British soldiers and American soldiers. And they stormed the beaches of Normandy, Utah Beach and Omaha Beach. And when that day was over, everyone in the world, even Hitler knew himself, that the Allied forces in principle had won the war. The war was over D-Day, on D-Day, as we defeated the soldiers on the Western Front, on the beaches of Normandy, on Omaha, in Utah. Yet it took a year, everyone say a year, it took a year to complete what was in effect a principal defeat of Hitler and his armies. Everyone knew that Hitler could not sustain a two-war uh, front. And so within one year, Hitler was finally defeated. This is how we need to see the Christian life. It is through Jesus, he inaugurated his kingdom. Through his death and his resurrection, new creation has been brought into existence. We are now in the middle or the overlap of two times. We call this inaugurated eschatology. Jesus won the victory over all the powers, sin, death, wickedness, corruption. Come on, somebody. And one day, he will make all things new. He will wipe away all tears. He will remove all suffering, all pain, all evil, and will finally defeat every power that has disfigured creation. So we stand in that victory. So how do we stand? Verse 14 tells us, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. First, we have to put on the belt of truth. The belt of truth. Remember, the devil traffics in the assumption that reality is not really real. He traffics in unreality. Right? For, for the devil, 2 plus 2 is not 4, it's, it's 17. But he, he's, he's, a mass, he's a virtuoso of misinformation. He can convince you that 2 plus 2 equals 17 in our moral universe, if you hear what I'm saying. The devil's a master manipulator. But Jesus' answer to this spirit of unreality is this. 
If you're my disciple, you will abide in my words and you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. The truth shall set you free. For example, I've used this um, analogy ad nauseum. Pretend like you've never heard this before. But about six years ago, my wife and I decided to move down downtown, about two, 2015. My wife at the time was a vegan. She was a raw foodist. We ate like birds. We ate seeds. That's all we ate. <laughs> so we moved to the land of Subarus and super tight tights and, and vegan smoothies and raw foodism. My wife is no longer that. To God be the glory, right? <laughs> But we love, honestly, I, we love. I mean, I became a vegan for a while. I mean, like, okay, we'll, we'll see, right? Um, so we moved downtown, and uh, we had a great time down there. But the first week we were down there, uh, we had a yard sale. And so uh, we had some chairs that we were selling. Someone came and bought the chairs, gave us a $20 bill. My wife gave me the $20 bill. About a week later, I went to make a kind of a, a, a cash deposit at our bank. Thankfully, the bank that I went to, the banker knew me. So I made my cash deposit. The banker was really friendly. He's like, hey, Chris, so good to see you. He doesn't come back for 10 minutes, which was abnormal. I'm sitting in this line, and I'm like, okay, what's going on? Something, something's not right. He comes back a little bit dramatically and slaps this $20 bill that I received from my wife. It's totally her fault. <laughs> slaps it on the window and said, this is a counterfeit bill. And I remember sitting there, and I'm like, okay, what do I say now? I'm like, and this is the only words that came out of my mouth. I'm a pastor. <laughs> That's all I could think of. I mean, I'm panicking. I'm like, did I do this? <laughs> Am I a counterfeiter? Like, I feel so judged right now. Um, and obviously, I explained everything. And he said, I'm going to have to confiscate it. And I'm like, oh, yeah, absolutely, all of that. But what was interesting, um, a couple weeks before this whole ordeal, maybe about a, a couple months before, I sat with a friend. And my friend told me, hey, this is how bankers identify the real from the counterfeit. They don't identify the real from the counterfeit by studying the counterfeit. The only way they can identify and distinguish between what is real money and fake money is every day, every hour, they're looking at the real stuff. All the time, looking at the real. This is, and, as, and because they're so immersed in the truth, so immersed in the reality of a real bill, they can instantly identify a counterfeit bill. Jesus is saying something similar to this. If you abide because the devil, this figure who traffics in unreality is so cunning, you have to soak yourself in God's truth. And as you abide in the words of Jesus, you then will know the truth. We always get the abiding part out and we say, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Well, how are you going to get to know the truth? The only way you get to know the truth is if you abide in the truth. That's so important for us to understand. You have to abide in God's truth. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Here's the problem. The math is not good for us. It's not good or calculus, whatever you want to call it. For example, all of us on average consume 2,800 hours of digital content. 
only 150, I think, four-ish hours in a given year is Jesus-shaped content. And you wonder why there's a scandal in the American church. The scandal in the American church is that the American church no longer has a Christian mind. I love you guys. The math doesn't add up. The average person, this is for all of us, five, the average person watches TV and videos on YouTube or whatever five to six hours a day. That's just an average. If you're under 42, if you're over 42, you're good, okay? We don't know how to use technology, but if you're under 42, four, you, you are on your phone, phone four to six hours a day. And you wonder why you are struggling. You wonder why you are so confused. You wonder why you are afraid and anxious and depressed. This is not to shame anyone because we're all a part of this culture. The reason why we've, we have, I'll say this, the American church, I believe this to the core of my being and I say this respect and I love the American church, but the American church has a mind that is shaped around, in many cases, secular assumptions about life. Not biblical assumptions on life. And the reason why is because we're being catechized by YouTube and whatever social media platform you're on. Are you hearing me? Let me say, let me say this really quick. Ideas are not free-floating, value-free things. That simply pass through your consciousness every day. Every thought has an agenda. That's why we call it a train of thought. A thought has a, a thought wants to take you to a particular destination. That's why it's absolutely essential that we put on truth every single day as we're locked up in this cosmic struggle because the spirit of unreality wants to go after your mind and distort your mind with lies. You're not good enough, right? Well, of course, none of us are good enough. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone in this room is basically a psychopath outside of the grace of Jesus. You have no future. You're not going to get through this season. Well, Psalm 23, yes, that feels like it. It feels like I'm stuck in a season. But Psalm 23 says what? Though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me, your rod and your staff. They comfort me. Some of you are surrounded by very difficult circumstances. Well, Psalm 23 says, even though you're surrounded by your enemies, it's the Lord who prepares a table before you. Even in adverse circumstances. So it's so important that we immerse ourselves in truth. Here, if you're going to break down any lie, every lie that the devil brings to you in all of its subtlety is basically this. If you're to break down the anatomy of his lies, it's usually associated with an unwillingness to trust that God, what God wants for you and I is only our deepest happiness. I felt it in the room. Most of you struggle with that thought. You mean God wants my deepest happiness? Yes. 
God is not a cosmic killjoy. Yes, Jesus said, pick up your cross and deny yourself. But that is in lieu of God ultimately giving you the deepest desires of your heart. He knows what you need more than you know what you need. It is God who wants to give you joy untrammeled. God who wants to give you peace that is transcendent. But there is one thing God cannot do. God cannot give you peace and joy and hope and righteousness outside of himself. But when we turn to Jesus, there is peace. There is joy. There is hope. There's a future. Your body's going to be okay. Your brain is going to be okay. Your children are going to be okay. You're going through a rough season. You're going to make it through that season because your God is with you. He is leading you on the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Come on. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He gives me my breath back. He gives me my strength back. He gives me my soul back. He gives me my mind back. He gives me my heart back. He gives me my body back. I've been sick and sick and sick. Some of you have told yourself of that. And I'm never going to get through this season. But God is the one who wants to heal and heal and heal your body. Yes, God wants only your deepest happiness. What's interesting, neuroscience says this, and I get this from John Mark Comer's book, what you see and think about affects the, the mirror neurons in your brain and also affects how thoughts enter the mind, creating neural pathways in your brain, which creates DNA proteins in our nervous systems, which then uh, are disseminated throughout our bodies and become part of us. And some even suggest are then passed on to our children in their genetic code. What you think about matters infinitely. Number two, righteousness. Put on righteousness. God wants, in other words, to make us right. God wants uh, justice. He wants to make us right, our neighbors right, this world right. And he does it through King Jesus. Three, we have to move through this. We have to put on the gospel of peace in a world bent on malice and war and hatred and outrage and contempt. When you walk in peace instead of malice and contempt, you walk in the power of God. When you serve your neighbor in love, your enemy in love and peace rather than malice and hatred and outrage and contempt. You walk in God's strength and you walk in God's power. It is the cosmic powers who want to divide. It is God who wants to bring everybody under King Jesus. The back, believe me, the front, come on. We put on the peace, the gospel of peace, which is all about reconciliation. It's about shalom. Shalom is synonymous of, I've, I've taught this many times before, with justice and righteousness. It simply means God wants a well-ordered relationship with him and with your neighbor, Larry, and with your body and yourself and your own mind and your psychology and with your children and with creation itself. This is what God wants for you, and he's given it to you through his son, King Jesus. We then put on faith. Faith, really quick, is loyalty to King Jesus. Jesus in his words. We then put on salvation, the helmet of salvation, 
which is, again, we have to go through this really quick. It's God rescuing us the whole of our lives from the enslavement to the powers of this world. We are, in other words, safe in Christ Jesus. And then we move to the sword of the spirit, the last uh, piece of armor. It is the sword of the spirit or the word of God that gives us power. Jesus, as I mentioned before, I think I mentioned this before, defeated Satan, Hasatan, in the wilderness by simply and constantly offering a rejoiner to Satan and his words. Jesus, everyone say Jesus. Jesus said, it is written. Why didn't Jesus say, hey, devil, homeboy, I made you. I'm the second person of the Trinity. I created all space and time. I am the wisdom in Psalm 104, right? That was with God the Father creating all things. I have all power. I am the personification of infinite love and joy and peace and power. So shut your face. Jesus didn't say that. You and I, if we had that kind of power, we would say something like that. Let's go, homeboy. Here are my credentials. Show me your credentials, right? Jesus doesn't do any of that. What does he say? He simply says, it is written. Jesus gives us a model for how to defeat unreality. It's his word. It's God's word that gives us the power to overcome sickness and disease and lies and temptations and hatred and malice and bitterness and fear and anxiety and hopelessness and despair and rage and paranoia and anger. Come on, somebody. We fight. We fight not in the French Revolution kind of way. Their anthem was... This is their utopian anthem. If you want to make an omelet, you have to break an egg. They're advocating for violence. No, our fight is not violence. We're called in a war-torn universe to build communities of peace and shalom and beauty and freedom and truth and love and justice and forgiveness. I'm sorry, the world cannot do that. Only those who are called by the name of Jesus, those whose identity is formed in Christ Jesus can build authentic communities of shalom and beauty. Come on. This world is filled with ugly things. We need to be a culture, a community that demonstrates beautiful things. We should be the ones leading the fight for freedom and truth and love and justice and forgiveness in a war-torn universe. We can only do this when we plant ourselves in God's word. So how do we do this? How do we put on the armor of God, right? I remember reading this passage when I was younger and I'm like, okay, how do you, how do you even do this? Is the armor of God like metaphysical things and by a magical incantation, we, we put on the armor? No, uh, the armor of God is the reality of the resources that God has given us 
And this question of what the armor is correlates well with how do we do spiritual warfare? Is spiritual warfare a metaphysical battle fought on some mountain summit, bogus basin, with some Luciferian, like throne-bearing cherub, right, figure? No, um, it's, it's more subtle than that. The spiritual warfare that we are engaged in and the way we put on the armor of God is through prayer. Paul ends verse 18 in this whole section. He says this, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keeping alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. So what Paul does is he ends with two participles. Participles are verbal phrases that function as adverbs. Did I get uh, adjectives? Did I get that right? And they modify a noun. Some of you are like, just stop, Chris, just stop. I think I was right with that. If not, forgive me. But these are two participles. Pray and be alert. He ends. He talks about cosmic struggle. He talks about putting on the armor of God. And then he gives us the answer to how we put the armor of God on. He says, pray and be alert. One scholar says this, both pray and be alert are probably instrumental, loosely connected with all the preceding instructions. As such, they are not additional commands to do, but instead are the means through which the prior instructions are accomplished. In other words, we put on the armor of God through prayer. One scholar said this, to clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. When we declare the truth in prayer over our lives, when we hold fast to the promises of God in prayer, when we walk in peace and pray peace over our city and over our boss, who we really don't like in the moment, or we pray peace over our marriage, over our children, and we put on peace and we put on faith, come on, We put on the armor of God. We put on truth in prayer. That is when we participate in this global campaign against the spiritual powers. And when we do that, we're not only defeating the powers, that's not what we're doing. We're just simply reminding the powers that they've already been defeated by Jesus. And as we remind the powers that they've been defeated, we are then implementing the victory of Jesus over our bodies, over our minds, over our environment, over our neighborhood, over our city, over our workplace, over our school, over our culture. Come on, somebody. I need to say stop. Come come on, somebody. I got to stop it. But somebody, come on. Intercessory prayer. And we've talked about intercessory prayer over the last month or so putting on truth. It's putting on peace. It's putting on righteousness. It's putting on faith. In the words of one author, it's spiritual defiance of what is in the way of what God has promised. Pray. Guys, MC Hammer, he's vindicated, was right. If you want to make it through the day, you have to pray. You... You could pray the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer in the original language renders every verb. I find this fascinating. Hollow, come, be done, give, forgive in the imperative mood. As one Bible scholar suggests, to pray the Lord's Prayer is to proclaim, not to ask, but to proclaim. Proclaim, or I like this even better, declare God's love and peace and rule over our lives. This is a dated 
um, definition of prayer, but I like it. The number one reason, according to one author, why prayer malfunctions in the hands of believers is that they try to turn a wartime walkie-talkie into a domestic intercom. Until you believe that life is war, you cannot know what prayer is for. Prayer, in other words, is all about declaring it's time for a regime change. Prayer like this is like my daughter. I love my daughter. She's like my wife. She's spunky. She is strong and she's full of faith. She's only one and a half. A couple weeks ago, she did this on her own. She went outside and sickness was going through our family. She took her finger and said this, no more sick. And she kept on saying it, no more sick. I'm like, you know what? She's right. No more sickness. We declared that my wife and I over our family. I want to declare this over our church. That is the heart of prayer. It's when we simply, we're not commanding. We're not trying to manipulate outcomes from God. We're not in charge. All authority that we have is derivative from King Jesus. But we're just simply declaring and agreeing what God has already accomplished on the cross. Maybe some of this sounds like alien talk to you. I get that. Don't be afraid. Stick, come back next week. I promise there'll be a better message, okay? And you will enjoy it a lot more. But prayer is learning, is learning the art of declaring God's rule and wisdom over our lives. And everyone said, amen. Could you bow your heads and close your eyes? I felt like this this morning. Just give me a couple minutes. I'd like to pray this over you. There, I felt like the Holy Spirit gave me a picture of some of you that have been struggling with battling a chronic illness. And one, and this is just the word that God gave me. I'm, again, I'm not, there's a spectrum to this disease. I get it. And doctors are still trying to identify the source of this. It's an autoimmune disease. But I felt like the Holy Spirit wanted to heal those who have Lyme disease. Actually, there are two things, two words that God gave me, Lyme disease and lupus, two L's. I'm not a doctor. I I believe, let me say this as a qualifier, I believe God can heal you right now. Do you believe that? I say this all the time. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. By his stripes, he can make our bodies whole. But God also, though he can heal us right now, he also can heal us through good doctors. We believe that as well. So it could be the case that God is going to heal you right away right now, or it could be the case that God will help you find, as he gives you strength, find the right doctor to help you with uh, what's going on physically in your body. But I want to pray for anybody in this room that has a chronic illness, specifically either a Lyme disease or lupus. As your eyes are closed, your your heads are bowed. Is there anyone like that right now that you would like prayer? Anyone like that? We had five people first service that I prayed for over that. Okay, I see that hand. See that hand. Thank you. See that hand. See that hand. Okay. See the hand in the back. Okay. 
think there's about five or six of you. Okay, church, can you just agree with me in prayer? Father, number one, I pray that they would be filled with faith today. I know the struggle has been discouraging and you felt like giving up and you're not sure what to do, but, but Father, I thank you that you would bring encouragement to every son and daughter. Father, I thank you that you would defeat every lie in their mind that they're stuck. Father, I thank you that is your genuine, eager desire to heal your people so we can do what you called us to do. Church, could you say amen to that? So Father, right now, I release the power of the Holy Spirit into every body that is has been diagnosed with either Lyme or lupus or even maybe an autoimmune disease. We, are, we thank you, Father, that you are in charge of all things and we thank you for your complete healing in everybody right now in Jesus' name. Whatever's malfunctioning, I thank you that you would go to the source and heal it today in the name of Jesus. Two things I pray, defeat the lies, bring three things, bring encouragement to those who are suffering from chronic illness and three, bring complete healing. Let their lives be a testimony of the goodness and faithfulness of Jesus. We come in agreement with heaven right now over every sick body and we thank you, Father, for your healing. And everyone said, amen. Can you give God a hand? All right, as, you, as you're seated, could you take out, we're going to do communion. We're going to receive the elements. If you, once you get the bread out, it will take you probably about three minutes to get it out. It took me about two minutes for service. Once you have the bread in your hand, could you just lift it up for me? This is a sacred moment. What we're doing, we are taking the elements, the, the body and the blood of Jesus, and we're remembering his death. It's a bifocal event today. We're looking back to the past when Jesus gave his life for us, but we're also looking to the future that God is going to make all things new. As we lift up right now the bread symbolizing the broken body of Jesus, we thank you, Father, for your healing. Jesus, we thank you that you went to the cross and you broke the curse over our lives. I thank you that you broke the dysfunction, the sin, the rebellion, the sickness, the brokenness through your death on the cross. And I thank you that you absorb the full weight of our sin and the full weight of, of capital E evil in your body and you released life and blessing and healing and hope. And I thank you, Father. Holy Spirit, you are here today. And as we partake of this bread, we thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives today and this week. In your name we pray. You may take. If you could lift. Hello. 
If you could lift the cup. I think we got it. As we lift up the cup, we thank you that your blood, the shedding of your blood, is a sign of new creation. I thank you through the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. You inaugurated the kingdom of God. I thank you, Jesus, that you are in the midst of us. I thank you that you are a healer. I thank you that you are a strength. I thank you that as we partake of the shedding of your blood in remembrance of you, I thank you that you empower us. I pray strength for those who are weak today. Church, can, can you say amen to that? I pray healing for those who are sick. I pray all the lies that we've been listening to in, our, in, in the world of our thoughts that you would expose and bring truth. Lord, I thank you that you would fill our hearts with faith. Lord, I thank you that you would fill us with righteousness, truth, peace, in the mighty name of Jesus. You may drink. As we close, could you do this? Could you? You certainly don't have to do this if this is your first time to Capitol. But if you're a member here, could you just lift up your hands? And we're going to take 30 seconds, or we're just going to thank God for his goodness. Father, right now we come into your presence. Just go ahead and say it. You can speak it. Tell him how good he is. We come into your presence with thanksgiving and into your courts with praise. Thank you that your, your steadfast love endures forever, your faithfulness to every generation. Lord, we thank you that your word brings hope and life. Lord, we thank you, Psalm 145, that the trademark of all your work is steadfast love. We thank you, Psalm 33. It's your word that brings everything into existence, and your word is faithful, and all your work is done in uprightness. We praise you today. We thank you for setting us free. Lord, as we learn to abide in the truth, we shall know the truth, and the truth will make us free. We are freedom people. We are people full of beauty and righteousness and hope and love and power and life and truth and light. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. And everyone said, come on, and everyone said, amen. Let's give God a hand. Thank you for joining us today. If you'd like to give towards this ministry, learn more about our church and events, or are in need of prayer, please visit capitalchurch.co.